0: This week, can the world do anything to stop the killing in Syria? Barbarous acts must cease in Syria. The country
1: must find its way onto a path of stability.
0: And a warning from America's top military man. A stable uh, Afghanistan
2: and a stable Pakistan. And quite frankly, right now, uh, we, we don't have either.
3: The FBS. Cibrep. Headlines.
4: Human rights activists in Syria say four people were shot dead last night during the latest demonstrations in Damascus and other cities. It comes as the UN Security Council condemns the violent crackdown on protesters for the first time since that violence began in Syria. Labour's putting pressure on Piers Morgan to face questions about phone hacking during the time he was in charge of the Daily Mirror. Harriet Harman wants him to face a Commons committee after Heather Mills claimed the paper hacked into her phone ten years ago. A Scottish MP says RAF Lucas should be used for commercial flights when it's taken over by the Army in 2014. Bruce Crawford wants the MOD to look at the use of civilian alongside military flights to boost the local economy. The United Nations has officially declared a famine in three new regions of Somalia. Much of the south of the country is now in famine, with tens of thousands of people pouring into Mogadishu in search of food. And a man's denied perverting the course of justice after a court was told he'd served in the parachute regiment when he was actually in the catering corps. John Lives is on trial for claiming £30,000 in benefits.
0: British and other NATO forces are continuing to attack targets in Libya in an operation designed to protect the country's civilians. But 1,300 miles away in Syria, dozens, perhaps hundreds of civilians are being killed by the country's security forces. And Britain is among the countries insisting we can't intervene to prevent the violence. The latest crackdown against protesters demanding the fall of President Assad's regime coincided with the start of Ramadan. Omar al-Habal lives in the city of Hamar.
5: Shooting on
2: Hama from all sides by all type of weapons, heavy weapons uh, bombs and heavy artillery machine guns and all around the city the people on the barricades light the tyres to protect the city
0: On Wednesday, the UN finally agreed to condemn Syria's crackdown on protesters Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon warned President Assad the violence must
5: stop Secretary-Council, after long discussions on this matter is now united in speaking out in one voice and condemning all this violence and asking them first to stop violence and engage in dialogue. Well, Russia
0: was the chief block to UN action on Syria, fearing any resolution could be used to justify direct intervention in the country. Britain's ambassador to the UN, Sir Mark Lyle Grant.
5: Barbarous acts must cease in Syria. The
1: country must find its way onto a path of stability.
0: This will only be achieved through the immediate cessation of violence and the implementation without delay of profound political
1: reforms.
0: To discuss the situation in Syria and what can be done, I'm joined by Middle East analyst Hajir Timourian. Hajir Timourian, thank you very much for joining us. Great Uh, pleasure. The UN statement is a far cry from a resolution. Will it make any real difference on the ground in Syria?
5: Not substantial, in my opinion, because the Russians, have, as you said, have made certain of that. The resolution says that any initiative to get the country out of this crisis must be led by the Syrians themselves. That is through negotiations. And of course, that's what President Assad himself says he wants.
0: Well, it's clear there's no international will to intervene militarily. So what incentive is there for Assad to listen to the UN?
5: Well, the regime would have definitely preferred complete silence, continued silence by the Security Council, um, and this can um, embolden some foreign criticism, particularly from the Arab world itself, which has been so silent, so definitely silent. But nevertheless, I don't think... Uh, because so much blood has already been shed in the eyes of the international community. The regime now stands as a group of war criminals. They have burned all their bridges behind them.
0: Well, I'm also joined in the studio by BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Christopher, thank you for joining us uh, as ever. Uh, We touched upon it there. This is a statement. It isn't a
1: resolution. Ultimately, will it make any difference? What I I agree with Hashir that uh, it really is more than the token, though. People I think it will make some difference to are the people on the ground, in the streets, the protesters. At last they will say, well, I know, we know there's not going to be a military help. We know there is not going to be anything that can dislodge uh, uh, President Assad. What they have got, though, is an international voice saying, we're not just on your side. We recognize what the other people are doing is wrong. But let nobody get any idea that we were going to have some operation that will protect the people. So, Christopher, this
0: is a, a start, I guess, in terms of the international community's uh, way of dealing with the situation. W- what's next? In terms of sanctions, what can be done that doesn't ultimately hurt the population?
1: Well, there are two meetings at the United Nations. Uh, one will take place this evening, uh, late this evening in in, in in New York. Another one is due to take place uh, tomorrow evening. That is after the, you know, the Friday prayers, etc. Et and they'll be looking to see what other countries can do, regional countries can do, because eventually it could be that the main diplomatic uh, help that everybody needs to stop what's going on will come from the region rather than anybody
0: else. Uh, Haji, what kind of sanctions would uh, would the regime in Syria
5: fear, if any? I think tightened European uh, sanctions imposed on leaders and supporters of the regime from... um, Coming to Europe, travelling to Europe, particularly bringing their money here, there are reports that huge amounts of money have been taken out of the country by the regime to such an extent that President Assad's very wealthy uh, cousin has put a billion dollars of his own money back into the central bank to enable it to function. The economy is already completely at the standstill there is shortages of bread, petrol the, uh, the the country is not functioning. It must be clear to even President Assad himself and the government of Iran, who are still giving it huge amounts of free oil and money, that uh, even if uh, the government succeeds in suppressing the demonstrations, the economy will not pick up again without some sort of backing from the outside world. So all sanctions will be welcomed by the Syrian people, despite the suffering. Uh, Hegeer, Christopher mentioned
0: that those sort of sanctions and the pressure has to come from within the region itself. What role does Turkey have to play?
5: Oh, Turkey, there are strong rumours that the government of Turkey who are facing their own military crisis because the chiefs of the defence staff have uh, resigned. There are 250 officers accused of plots in prison uh, that the president is hoping to distract the army by having a venture in Syria. In other words, declaring, say, a a ribbon across the whole of the border, the length of Turkey with Syria, um, a a free zone for refugees inside of Syria, and invade Syria to make sure that the refugees will not come into Syria, into Turkey itself, and will be safe inside inside Syria. They will be seen, that sort of action will be seen as an invasion of Syria, it will embolden the people and it will make the government of um, Turkey itself less, more free of
0: domestic problems. Well, while we're being told there's no prospect of military action against Syria, in Libya, the NATO bombing campaign continues, despite the apparent stalemate on the ground. Just hours after Britain formally recognised rebel leaders as the country's legitimate government, their military commander, General Abdul Fattah Yunus, was assassinated by Islamist-linked militia within the opposition forces. And the Defence Secretary, Liam Fox, has admitted Colonel Gaddafi is unlikely to fall unless his closest allies turn against him.
6: If other countries believe that there is a need to have a um, ground force, it would require a new UN resolution, I don't think the chances of such a resolution are are even remotely possible. There's only one message we should be sending to the regime, and that is that we have both the military capability and the resolve to continue um, pursuing and fulfilling United Nations Resolution 1973 as long as it is required. Any other message would simply give comfort to a regime which is increasingly under pressure.
0: Well, Hajir Tamorian is still with me, as is uh, Christopher Lee. Uh, Hajir, Liam Fox says Gaddafi's regime is increasingly under pressure. What evidence is there that he's right in that assumption? Reports out of Tripoli today that Gaddafi's support is growing there.
5: Well, we hear today that, for example, the uh, western town of Zlitan near Libri- uh, Tripoli, the capital, the center of it, has been captured by the rebels uh, before they have been pushed back a little bit. So in the western Nafusa mountains, the rebels are continuing to receive aid for, through Tunisia and becoming bolder and bolder. The whole of the Nafusa mountains are now in the grip of the rebels as well as the whole of the east. So the, I think that NATO bombing is also uh, becoming more hurtful. Um, it's running out of soft targets. It's now trying to hurt Gaddafi more where it hurts more and therefore I do believe that uh, because any contemplation of defeat is just impossible for the West to con- contemplate at this moment the bombing will have to continue and Gaddafi is running out of money and uh, morale uh, Christopher what's your assessment of where we are at the moment in Libya
0: are we moving forward in any discernible fashion
1: uh, discernible uh, uh, not so discernible at the moment I'll give you one example of how some people are thinking Egypt, Libya, Syria—everybody's been looking for the solutions. They were all looking for solutions. There's one constant in all that, and the only people that actually can make change are the military, internally the military, and then see what happens. The more and more people have come to the conclusion that the biggest ally that the NATO might have in in even in Libya. Might be the military and the people. Apart from the viciousness of uh, Colonel uh, of President Assad's brother in Syria, it might be the military that eventually sort of takes charge. Uh, Haji Christopher uh, mentioned Egypt. There, we've seen uh,
0: Hosni Mubarak on a stretcher in a caged dock go on trial in Egypt. Many people didn't expect the
5: trial to go ahead. Are you surprised that it has? I wasn't completely surprised because the military council, who are now running. Egypt and preparing the way for elections, they had to distance themselves from the man who had picked them one by one himself. Uh, They were seen as his poodles. There was pressure on the streets upon them. This will gain them more time. And for the time being, by actually seeing what they called the great pharaoh uh, for 30 years absolute ruler of egypt in a cage the way he used he himself used to treat his opponents um has reassured the people of egypt that change has happened and therefore the military now have more time okay hajir hajir tamorian thank you very much for joining us today
0: Still to come this week, the end of the line for military jungle training in Belize.
2: Yeah, it's a sad occasion, not just for, for a batch sub in the British Army, but for the Belizeans as well. You know, the British Army have always been here for the last sort of 25, 30 years. And uh, I think it would be a, quite a shame. They're going to be sort of up and running on their own.
0: The ink wasn't even dry on last year's strategic defence and security review before some were queuing up to tell the government they'd got it wrong. But more than nine months on, an influential group of MPs has joined the ranks expressing grave concerns about future plans for Britain's military. The Cross-Party Commons Defence Committee released their report on the SDSR this week, warning the forces could be left unable to do all that's asked of them. Well, BFBS reporter James Hurst has been
6: following this and he's in the studio now. James, what has the Defence Committee said? Essentially, they are are saying there is a mismatch between the ambitions for Britain in the world that were set out in this review and the National Security Strategy and the political imperative that went with it to save money. They welcome a lot of the ambitions that are set out. The new structures are seen as part of that ambition, but they say they regret the loss of the Harries, seriously regret the abandonment of Nimrod MRA4 and the intelligence-gathering capability, plus with no carrier for 10 years, They say that leaves a capability gap that could fail British forces, leaving them unable to do their job. And their real worry is, while there is an ambition set out to spend more money from 2015, it's not written as a firm policy, as a guarantee in the SDSR. And James Arbuthnot, who chairs the committee, fears those capability gaps might never get plugged.
1: There are so many uncertainties about funding. There is so much difficulty over the defence equipment budget about the number of armed forces where they're going to be based. Uh, that w- we say that we are not convinced at all that it's going to achieve what it wants, what it's set out to achieve
6: not convinced that it will or, or not convinced that it can
1: well it can achieve those things provided it begins to take decisions at an early stage to, for example, provide the funding necessary for the Ministry of Defence.
6: And perhaps not surprisingly, the government are saying about this, it can and it will achieve what it needs to. I spoke to the Armed Forces Minister Nick Harvey yesterday, and he said ministers do share the committee's view that spending does have to increase from 2015.
7: And that's, of course, why we were able to announce on July the 18th that the Treasury has committed a further £3 billion to the equipment budget between 2015 and 2020, which enables us to go ahead and place orders now for the Chinooks, for the Airseeker Surveillance Aircraft, for the Warrior Upgrade, for the Cats and Traps and further work on the, the JSF aircraft.
0: So, James, the extra money was announced when this report had been written but not published. Does that make it out of date? Uh,
6: The government are saying, yes, things have moved on. Uh, James Arbuthnot, when I was speaking to him, isn't convinced actually that 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 extra guaranteed 1% real terms is going to complete the job, that the maths adds up. Uh, Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute doesn't seem to think all the pieces are in place yet either. One of the uncertainties which the government is
1: beginning to resolve but hasn't fully resolved is is how much extra money the Ministry of Defence can expect after 2014. They have announced some uplift in the equipment budget which will help quite a bit but there probably needs to be more done if the, if the government is to meet its commitment to have some balanced capabilities by 2020. So, Christopher, what do you make of the committee's report? Is there anything new in it? Uh, No, there's nothing new in it, but let's put it in perspective. What the committee has simply done is brought together all the evidence that they've heard during the past few months... And they've made an assessment of it. There are some things which you smile about because, uh, for example, the 1% uh, increase in the equipment budget. Well, in fact, it's not the equipment budget. It's it's part of the procurement uh, uh, and acquisition budget. The second thing is 1%, uh, that was the announcement from the Secretary of State. In fact, they had promised 2%. Now, if you double that and you've got no guarantees you're going to get it, every major project... And forget Chinook buying. That's not a major project. Every major project that the SDSR October last year needs to get to 2020 doesn't work. And unless they get that money at a rate of about 2% and actually get it rather than just the promise by 2015, and don't forget what happens then, we've got a general election and we've also got a new defence review coming up, but unless they get it, then it won't work. So, James, the, the drip, drip, drip of dissent continues, I guess, and I guess we need to remember that the goalposts
0: are, are, are ever-moving in terms of world politics.
6: Yeah, uh, absolutely, they are. The, the, the government insists this is an adaptable posture, and uh, I, w- I was talking to um Lieutenant General Sir Graham Lamb, who, who worked on the Reserves Review that came from the Defence Review. He said, actually, you shouldn't be alarmed by this, because... The SDSR wasn't beginning, middle and end. Now, you, you mentioned, Chris, the, the, the 2% you say was was promised. That This is the committee's whole point. Actually, they say nothing was ever promised. What the government well, is saying, saying is... The Prime Minister
1: th- said it, so why isn't
6: that a promise? Well, the, 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 he, said it, he, said, the he said... said the prime minister. But this is the point. It was ambition rather than no, firm it was policy. Prime minister... Uh, well, the, the the point they're making is again the, that, that announcement was at least 1% but yeah it's a lot of it is in the words I think people will be choosing their words but perhaps also, a bit more carefully from also, now Also
1: James if you listen to uh, the Defence Secretary uh, Liam Fox in the Commons the other day when he said about the 1% he said uh, all things being equal uh, you know at that even that an official statement never comes out as where's the money? Commitments are still to be delivered is the, is the message I think from everybody here.
0: Okay, okay the message is I'm none the wiser Thank you very much though James Hurst america's most senior military officer has been in southern and eastern afghanistan this week and while admiral mike mullen insists there's been progress as he ends his four years as chairman of the joint chiefs he admits the border between afghanistan and pakistan remains the world's most dangerous place
2: i think those safe havens have to be addressed uh, in order to generate any kind of long-term success and and i really define that as a a stable uh, afghanistan and a stable pakistan and quite frankly right now uh, we we don't have either i think we've got a better strategy and a better lay down of these than we had uh, a year to eighteen months ago uh, because uh, of the, the decisions leaders have made there but there's still significant security challenges there as well
0: Admiral Mullen says he's repeatedly raised the issue with Pakistan's military leaders, but the strained relations between the two countries since the killing of Osama bin Laden is hampering progress. Well, earlier I spoke to Professor Iftikar Malik, an expert on the fragile border region who's based in Bath and Oxford.
3: Over the years, I think Pakistani armed forces and uh, the Pentagon and the CIA have worked together, but recently there have been tension. I think the war has gone on for too long. It's the longest war that America has fought in its history, and it's the longest war Britain has fought in its history, and it's getting nowhere, and um, Taliban have refused to go, and uh, there's quite a bit of uh, disillusionment um, all around, including Pakistan. When these borders were demarcated by the British in 1891-92, all kinds of uh, concessions were given to the local tribal people, who could move from one side to the other. So they are kind of autonomous regions. So to control them and to impose military will on them is losing the battle of hearts and minds.
0: What uh, Mike Mullen also seems to suggest is that the pace at which the Pakistani uh, military go after the militants is is a source of frustration. Why do they seem to work at such a slow pace?
3: I think Pakistan is overstretched. I mean, Karachi has been turbulent and just last one month there have been you know, 300 killings, ethnic problem in Karachi, Balochistan is restive, Pakistan's problems with India not totally resolved. And I think that has been Pakistan's security concern number one since 1947. When you send in uh, troops inside those villages, inside those, uh, you know, uh, tribal hamlets, then there is a reaction. And this reaction is exploited by the militants and by the Taliban who say these are fellow Muslims killing fellow Muslims for Western external forces.
0: Uh, Three months after the raid that killed Osama bin Laden then, how would you assess the relationship now between Pakistan and the United States?
3: I think uh, it's not uh, friendly uh, to that extent as it was uh, before, uh, let's say, April Pakistani army has been pretty uh, disturbed because there have been these security lapses number 2 the Americans didn't take the Pakistanis into confidence when they went after Osama and number 3 from the congress and from the pentagon and from the cia there have been strong there has been strong criticism of pakistan and more recently the congress has stopped 800 million worth of assistance to pakistan so i think pakistanis feel very very jittery After all these years, after 35,000 Pakistanis having been killed and country being pretty much unstable and they're not able, you know, to sell this war, frankly, to their own people. Professor Iftikhar Malik
0: talking to me earlier on. Well, meanwhile, the MOD has moved this week to insist most British personnel will continue to serve six-month tours in Afghanistan after the commander of task force, Hellman, suggested some could be there for a year. Brigadier Ed Davis says those in key training and mentoring roles could benefit from a longer relationship with the Afghan forces they're preparing to hand over to. But the prospect of 12-month tours worries some families back home.
3: People like me have got used to it. We can bear these burns a bit easier, but young mums with young families, a bit of discussion first.
7: They tell you your husband's going away and you think,
0: oh, it's all right, because it's only going to be for however long, and then you have all the pre-deployment exercises and everything else. It already takes a big chunk out of your life. Christopher, does Ed Davis have a point about the potential benefits of longer tours?
1: No, and yes. Uh, No, not for the people he's talking about. I would say the commander's ought to be there for longer. So you've got the continuity of an idea of a, of, a, of a plan. It's important to remember that the area in the north, Kunduz, for example, is now hotting up, which wasn't hotting up before, and therefore mentors, for example, have to have force protection on the greater sca- uh, plan. The biggest problem remains, and it's this. The Americans are fighting a war while they're a democracy, which they never had to do before. The second thing is the whole theory of counterinsurgency, which is what this is all about, is beautifully written, but falling apart. And the idea is that none of us, the British, the Americans, the Dutch, the Canadians, etc., is used to the idea of fighting what has become now, because we've been there for so long, an imperial war. And the fourth part of it is President Kazai himself cannot agree to the border between afghan and pakistan because it's pashtun if he agreed to a border he's politically he'd be finished but in terms of the
0: the the headline of of you know possibility of a year-long tour you can understand why service personnel would see the irony in that i guess
1: well they would see the irony especially at the time they're supposed to be coming out but the combat troops the shooters are supposed to be coming out in 2014 let's see what happens It's nearly the end of the line
0: for Britain's Jungle Warfare Training Unit in Belize, another victim of the government's spending cuts. The 70 personnel at Batsa will be reduced to around 10 to keep the site ticking over. It also means the end for BFBS broadcasts from Belize. Neil Carter is based there and sent this report.
7: The British forces have been present for quite some time, since the late 1940s. Current BATSUB, British Army Training Support Unit Belize commander, is Lieutenant Colonel Robert Lindsay.
8: Well, up until 1994, we had British Forces Belize here, which was deployed operationally. It fluctuated in size between probably about 1,500 servicemen and 2,500. And their role was to deter potential aggression from Guatemala. And that included quite a lot of military, but also RAF in the form of support helicopters and carriers. That operation, over a number of years, was successful. And as the BDF, the Belizean Defence Force, developed, we were then in a position in 1994, over a decade after independence here, for the BDF to take on the primacy of that role. But rather than vacating Belize completely, BATSUB was formed so that we would keep a foot on the ground here be able to support the BDF with helicopters and and, and other areas, and to undertake training for the British Army in particular.
7: Following last year's SDSR, the Strategic Defence and Security Review, it was decided to draw down troop numbers in Belize. In fact, by the end of this year, a crew of only six will remain on site. However, exercises will continue, but at a much smaller level and be more self-supportive. The presence of the British forces over the years has been greatly appreciated, however, by the local community. And Brigadier General Dario Tapia, commander of the BDF, Belize Defence Force, fondly recalls the sound of low-flying aircraft.
6: The Belizean people will quite remember the Harriers because when the Harrier flew, it was such a thunderous noise. But it meant to us the security guarantee that we saw from it. Even though it was noisy, we did appreciate their presence here in Belize and I'm sure that the Belizean people quite well remember the Harriers and that even a Harrier was donated to the government and people of Belize and it's sitting right at the Belize International Airport at the Philip Goldson International Airport.
7: BFBS radio in Belize began in the early 1980s and veteran BFBS presenter and archivist Alan Grace visited Belize a number of times during his career and saw the station grow from mere humble beginnings.
5: Well, broadcasting was very much a case of being run by the military, like so many stations in their very early days. I mean, in Aden, for example, there was the Aden Forces Broadcasting, which later would become the FBS Aden. So it was here, it was a way of keeping the lads interested, entertained, if you like, and slowly bits and pieces began to trickle through from the UK, and that was really the basis of
1: BFBS in Belize.
0: Alan Grace ending that report from Neil Carter. Well, earlier I spoke to Colour Sergeant Steve Hack, who's been in Belize for more than five years, and I asked him to tell me more about the jungle environment.
2: It's uh, a totally different sort of jungle. It's a secondary jungle. Uh, the training area is approximately three to six hours away from uh, airport camp, for, for those people that are uh, familiar with it.
0: And give us an idea of when when they're out there, what conditions are actually like in terms of, you know, weather, humidity, terrain, just how arduous can it be?
2: Um, very. The, um, the area is uh, an undulating mountain range going from um, through the secondary jungle with the humidity. Seven, eight months of the year it's raining, so, uh, you, you know, you're not just wet from from sweating, you're, you're wet from the actual weather as well. Uh, so all these combined you have to really sort of dig deep and uh, look after your body, look after your kit, which is why it's such a useful tool. It's like no other environment that we, um, we ever train in.
0: I guess there's the the indigenous wildlife to worry about as well, is there at times?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, Belize has got its fair share. We've got um, unique snakes that uh, always seem to hang around. <laughs> Don't ask me why, but um, yeah, we've got um, your, your howler monkeys, your spiders, scorpions, and uh, you know, if you're not careful and you're not clearing areas when you when you go to sit down or when you do your halts, then uh, you, you do bump into them. Uh, some to uh, some cost. You know, when they get the uh, the bites, uh, they're, they're not um, life threatening, but um, they do sort of knock you about. The scorpion bites can uh, can put you on uh, on your back for sort of 24 hours.
0: There must be a feeling of disappointment there, is
2: there? It is a sad occasion, not just for for a bat sub in the British Army, but. For the Belizeans as well, you know, they um, they actually really do look up to the uh, the, the, the British uh, and the British Army have always been here for the last sort of twenty five thirty years, and uh, I think it'd be a, quite a shame they're going to be sort of up and running on their own for a while.
0: Colour Sergeant Steve Hack. Then there's a special programme marking the end of jungle training in Belize and the BFBS station there this Sunday on BFBS Radio at five pm
1: UK time. Uh, Christopher, a very quick reaction in the seconds we have remaining. Um, it's no, as, as Colossan said, no other environment like it. Anybody who's ever trained in that area, uh, I can remember a certain amount of fear as well but probably came out thinner than anything else. We Can't Do It Elsewhere reflects, to some extent, what the government thinks the forces will be doing in the next 10, 15, 20 years. One wonders if they're right. Well, it will be sorely missed, of course, and we wish everybody there the best of luck. Well, that is it
0: for this week. Uh, Many thanks to Christopher Lee and to all my guests on the programme today. Do get in touch with us, as ever. Our email address is sitrep at bfbs.com or you can visit our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. I'll be back next week. Week, but until then from me Matt teal thank you very much for listening and goodbye
3: this is Bitwrap on bFBS.